This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Do you find yourself juggling multiple websites and clinical tools as you care for your patients? NeoCarePal is a resource providing access to multiple clinical calculators in just one place. To learn more, visit nicuconnections.com backslash NeoCarePal. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. We are live at the NEC Symposium here in San Diego. We are joined today uh, with Mark Del Monte. Mark serves as the CEO, Executive Vice President of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Delighted to be invited. It's great to be here. <laughs> Daphne, how's it going? I'm doing well. We've had a busy morning so far, but we love having people in the, in the booth, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you ask the first question, Daphne. Well, what I have been intrigued, we've been talking about this morning, is the three different tracks. Um, And certainly, um, one of the major tracks is the advocacy and improvement track. So tell us about um, the major milestones and kind of neck advocacy, and why should advocacy be be a part of everybody's um, battle against neck? Oh, I think that's a great question. You know, uh, it's inspiring to see the way that this conference is organized. I appreciate Mm -hmm. how you said that. Because in order to deal with uh, this incredibly serious condition, it's going to take a lot of people working together in different ways. Mm. There's definitely the medical science of it and the research of it. We're going to have to figure that out and understand the complexities and and um, uh, the markers and all of the things that are going to be necessary in order to really do uh, good uh, research and uh, on the uh, origin and and the consequences of neck, we're going to have to take really good care of the kids, They're the, and we're going to have to involve families in that. And so the the uh, clinical track is really important, just so you get to the care side. But the opening speaker today said, "Advocacy can no longer be peripheral." I typed it into my phone. I was so excited to hear that as an opening comment. We cannot achieve everything that we want to in building a world without neck unless we can galvanize communities of people, policymakers, decision makers at all levels to understand that we have to have an all-in approach to this. We're going to have to link up arms. We're going to have to work together in ways that are new. And that's advocacy 100%. Uh, Children's stories are very compelling, and family stories are very compelling. But they're not compelling if no one hears them. 
And advocacy is an opportunity to create change, to create real moments where change can happen. And there's nothing more consequential, more impactful, more change-making than to hear the story of a family. Uh, This morning, we heard Jennifer's story about Micah. And who can not hear that story and be changed by it? And so advocacy is an opportunity to create those moments outside of this community while we, while we learn from each other all about the research and medicine. But how do we bring that story out to policymakers and everyone else so that they can understand the challenges and they can do what they can do? Maybe that's money. Maybe that's policy. Maybe it's a hospital administrator. Uh, there's all kinds of people that we can think of that can help us in this. And to get them to our side is the simplest definition of advocacy. I think that's so interesting because... Um, for for many, advocacy means oh, I got to go to Washington, right. <laughs> and and I think we fail to realize that advocacy opportunities for advocacy are available in our own backyard in a variety of manners. And um, I'm just curious as to um, what do you feel the impact of these small steps can can mean to the um, larger body of work. I feel like sometimes you say, what am what am I going to do in my little hospital, right? Um, but I think we, we fail to realize how much those little contributions do make a difference. Do, do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, gosh. Say that again. That's so good. That's the most important thing. If you, if you start at third base, uh, you know, I have to go to Washington. I have to talk to a senator. I have to talk to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. You're overwhelmed and exhausted before you've even started anything. And uh, I think my favorite definition, I'm a lawyer. I, I was a lobbyist for a couple of decades. Like, I've been doing advocacy in Washington, D.C. at the level that you're sort of talking about. But even after all of that, my favorite definition of advocacy is creating a moment in which change can occur. Creating a moment in which change can occur. And if you think about what those moments can be, that can be between a family and a clinician. It can be a clinician and their department chair, a clinician and a hospital administrator. It can be a, a family and a clinician and a researcher creating moments for change. I think building an advocacy agenda means starting at the very beginning. Uh, it, is, it is to create change in ways that you can and in moments that you, that you have. And if you start all the way at Final Jeopardy or whatever that uh, metaphor is, I think people get exhausted and overwhelmed and feeling like it's too much. I, I have too much. And so uh, I have uh, seen it over and over where those tiny wins – those, those change moments that happen, they stack on top of each other and they create a trajectory of real meaningful and deep change. So when people are considering, like, I'm going to get into advocacy for necrotizing enterocolitis, what does that mean? Uh, what was your experience? What could have been better? What, what should have changed? What, what could have been improved for you and your family and your child? Begin at the beginning and ask yourselves those questions and those are real advocacy moments. Well, I think especially when we talk about neck, and uh, we just spoke with Aloka about um, breastfeeding medicine and the disparities in in breastfeeding rates, Um, I think those advocacy pieces are going to be absolutely critical to solving the problem with neck. I guess my question to you is, isn't that probably true for all of the diseases that we treat? Um, How did we kind of separate the the science and the medicine from the advocacy when it seems like to really move the field forward, we have to put 
the two back together. Yeah, that's exactly right. Let's let's take it out of the medical context for a, for a moment, just to sort of think about it. Um, imagine the group of mothers who had children who were killed by drunk drivers, and what what could they have done about it? This is how it is. What what are we going to do about it? You know, and suddenly they have changed a total set of social norms. There were, there were, it is now not okay. It is, it is, um, it is, uh, it's illegal <laughs> in many places, uh, in all places, I guess, but there's also a social norm that's changed. And so you, you can create that change even without federal legislation or kind of big bang changes like federal legislation. I think the breastfeeding example is a perfect example of the way that our culture is changing rapidly. It wasn't so long ago that if you wanted to pump, you had to go find a bathroom. Uh, and and make a way and try not to intrude on your work too much because you could get in trouble for that. And so people started to say, no, this is bad for children. This is bad for mothers. Uh, whether or not the science was perfect, we've always said breast is best. And so if we can facilitate breastfeeding, uh, the AAP certainly uh, in favor of that. But all the things that go around that are the most important. So, you know, understanding like, okay, the science is breastfeeding is very good. But what are the social norms around that? How do you enable that? How do you enable moms to be able to do that effectively? For moms who can't do that, how do you enable donor breast milk and all the things that go around that? And so there's a lot of hope in this. I think there's a lot of potential for massive and impactful change that begins with those simple recognitions that we need to do this better. We need to think about this differently. And one by one, piece by piece, I think there's a lot of opportunity here. What is your story about advocacy? I feel like um, th there's many ways to approach a problem. Advocacy being one avenue to uh, to tackle to tackle any any issue. And I I want to believe that in your role at the American Academy of Pediatrics, you probably have the opportunity to explore a multitude of avenues. And the fact that you're um, choosing advocacy to me is is exceptional. And I am wondering how did that come about and what was the realization that this is what we have to pursue? Yeah, one of the things that I say uh, about the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is sort of 93 years old now, is that uh, advocacy is baked into the DNA. Uh, it was actually, a, it was an advocacy purpose. Uh, there's a lot of great stories about um, about those early pediatricians in, in after the turn of the century who got really annoyed at the AMA and sort of walked out and founded their own uh, association to to do something differently for children. But it's sort of baked in to the care of children that in addition to one at a time excellent clinical care and patient care, uh, much of what can improve the lives and well-being of children happens outside the exam room. And so it doesn't, you know, you don't have to tell pediatricians about social drivers of health. People get that immediately. We're trying to convince the adults that that's important these days. But for pediatricians and children, that's just obvious. And so fast forward to all of that. Um, you don't have wins in injury prevention, which is kind of one of the hallmarks of AAP's work over the years, uh, without changing laws without creating social norms. You, you know, you can try to tell one patient at a time, one family at a time, please put your child in a card seat, please put your child in a safety belt, um, or you can create social change so that that becomes the norm. So what we say at the Academy of Pediatrics is that our core competencies in the world are policy development. So how do we use the best science to create the best policy? What's the gold standard for children, uh, whether it's uh, medical care or 
or, or injury prevention or anything else of, for kids in the United States and around the world. So that's number one, develop the right policy. Uh, number two is educate everybody about it. So policy and education. And then the third core competency for AP is advocacy. And you, because if you have the right policy, and even if you do the right education, you can't create the change unless you're really advocating for it. And so that brings you in to that uh, field, whatever that looks like. And so for us, it's uh, you know we have a big Washington office. I spent a long time there, but we our chapters are working in every state capital, but also our members are working all over everywhere to cre- create a changed environment for children. And one of the things that I get inspired about all the time is the residents. Because they don't know this is hard yet. So often they just solve it. (laughs) You you give them $25 in a half an afternoon and suddenly the whole thing is fixed. And I'm thinking to myself, I would try to do that. It would take, you know, six full-time staff and a million dollars. And so um, that enthusiasm for advocacy is just throughout the organization. And, And so... The payoff is how much fun it is, and and to see real change happen. Yeah, yeah. Is that the saying? We didn't know it was impossible, so so we did it. Some, yeah. Something like that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly right. Well, and I love um, uh, what what you were saying about as pediatricians, advocacy is just something that we do. And I recognize most of our listeners are neonatologists, and somehow, while we have some stars in neonatology doing amazing advocacy work we've kind of separated from the community a little bit. And so I think um, this focus on advocacy kind of uh, is part of every single session. Um, I think we'll really remind people of what we can do on a one-on-one basis. Um, You're going to be a part of um, one of the focus groups, um, translating neck bedside issues into policy action. So tell us, where we are in terms of policy action um, and moving uh, the needle forward uh, for Nick. Yeah, thank you. The advocacy track at this meeting is just great. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm so um, honored to be a part of uh, speaking at that. And I think there's a couple of different points of entry here into advocacy. One is sort of from from the NICU outward uh, and then from the kind of top down. So what do we need out of NIH, you know, really way out there in, you know, this sort of massive um, engine of biomedical research in the world? Uh, how do we get there? So that's sort of tomorrow's talk. And, you know, how, how do we, how do we get them to focus better? But to get there, you have to decide what you want them to do. We have to have some questions that we want the NIH to answer. We have some ideas that we think Congress should fund or, you know, the beginning of it is, is forming that policy agenda. And so I think the AAP section on neonatal and perinatal medicine uh, is, um, I'm not sure I agree with your characterization as of them outside of advocacy. <laughs> I, we, they have a great advocacy committee and they're working really hard. Um, but I can see the point where the NICU is kind of a s- separate space in the hospital, you know, and so to think about, uh, how do we think about that uh, integrated into the hospital setting, integrated in the community, integrated in the patient experience, and, and advocating about that? I think you're you're quite right. It can be very focused to 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 uh, look right at the baby and um, and uh, and not beyond. So all of the things that that uh, in the incredible array of complicated medical intervention that happens in uh, the neonatal ICU, we need so much more. 
And I spend a lot of time with neonatologists. That's a really fun part of my job. But what I hear from them, and I get to hear science talks all the time, and that the field is surging forward as fast as it can. The, the learning curve is enormous. The development of science is so exciting. What accelerants do we need for that? What do we need to do to make that even go faster, bigger, wider, so that, that, um, that the whole field can uh, be even more impactful in the care of these neonates? I, I think that is where you start to ask yourself the right questions about what your policy agenda should be. On that note... What, what do you think then about reminding people that it's okay to fail? Because I think that um, we want to be successful. We have uh, an incentive to be successful. And yet, I think it's rapid cycling of sometimes failures that, that still know, let us know that this is not the path we should follow. A failure is not a failure. It's just saying this is not the path you should follow. And it redirects our efforts. Um, how, what is your perspective your philosophical perspective on, on the idea of failure in the context of advocacy and moving the field forward. Are we starting with the small questions and then getting harder as it goes? I see how, I see how it works here. Um, you know, one of the benefits of being the CEO of an organization that's 93 years old is that we have been here 93 years and we have every expectation that AAP will be here 93 more. And so that long-term view really matters, that, that the, the world moves really quick right now. And so your rapid cycle uh, kind of metaphor is, right, what are we doing tomorrow? What are we doing today? How, are we already late? Did we already fail? Is it over? Did we miss it? Is it gone? Or, um, you know, or, or should we be optimistic or pessimistic? Or, or how do we even think about forming? I, I would encourage all of us, and this is the way I think about it at AP and how we think, We are at a really important moment here. Um, science is advancing around us so quickly. I, I'm in a number of meetings now about AI, which is incredibly exciting. People are at equal measures terrified and thrilled uh, about what this could be, depending on what the meeting is. But there is a clear arc of innovation. There, this field moves forward and uh, across all of pediatrics, not just neonatology. And they, it, did not, it does not move forward without tremendous failures. And uh, I think the history, I'll just take it out of neonatology for a second, thinking about COVID-19 vaccines, uh, for example, and all of the controversy about COVID vaccines. I hope that's not too controversial for the podcast, but, uh, um, and thinking about adverse events and tracking adverse events for COVID vaccines. If you look at the history of vaccine development, there was a whole lot more failure. I mean, it was that we would not tolerate today what was very routine in the early days of vaccine uh, development. And so even what would be a failure today is so much better, so much safer, so much uh, less impactful than failures of yesterday uh, that I think it, it can create a little opportunity for boldness. That's I right. love that. We've learned to fail better, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Or within narrower parameters, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> So, um, like you said, the section on neonatal perinatal medicine is working around the clock, really, at, at setting the policy agendas. So, can you tell us a little bit about what's what are the things on the agenda? Especially, we've got a lot of trainees who listen, some early career neos who may be invested in, in joining the charge. 
Sure, great. Um, one you already mentioned, I think access to donor breast milk has been a huge initiative and is quite important. And we've seen some really impressive success, actually, some state laws that are moving along. People are starting to growing awareness of this uh, as an idea that is um, uh, taking hold and we could be approaching that critical mass. I think there's uh, the policy agenda, as I would describe it um, in kind of non-clinical terms, are things that are sort of in the NICU and out of the NICU. So all of the things that are impactful on families that uh, are impactful in the way that they're showing up. So how infants are arriving in the NICU and why. And so all of the agenda around making sure that we reduce premature deliveries, uh, we reduce all the causes of uh, prematurity and uh, keep um, babies out of the NICU. So that, that there's a lot of work around that, which is quite important and, and is in some ways connected to all the rest of our work about poverty and um, substance use and all of that. And, and so those are all linked and interconnected. And then thinking about an agenda around um, uh, wrapping arms around families who have child children who have stays in the NICU. So what is a plan for safe care? What is a good discharge strategy? How do we create social safety nets around uh, families who have children now, perhaps with special health care needs that will need all kinds of support and an appropriate handoff to primary care pediatrics or subspecialty or, or others. And so making sure that, that uh, you know, we are help keeping children from ever being in the NICU and then for children who are in the NICU that they have someplace safe uh, and well cared for when they leave. You alluded to um, uh, the talk that you're going to give tomorrow also as part of the breakout group strategies to increase funding for NAC research. And I think that's such an important topic because I, I feel like lots of people say, well, I have this great idea. This is what I think I can do. I think this will make an impact, but how the heck am I going to pay for it? Um, and so obviously I think people are familiar with the struggles of funding research. Do you have any answers? No. I have some advice. Okay. I'm not sure if I have a lot of answers. Um, first of all, I think for uh, clinician researchers, you have to do really good research. Mm. Uh, you know, that, um, that the, the, Grant writing process is um, the, the basic core of that is that uh, you put in your best ideas and that goes into the competition with all the other ideas and the best ideas get funded. And I think by and large, um, that process is sound. The peer review approach to um, NIH funding is is uh, sound, people doing that. So do great research and have great ideas and put in great, great applica- applications. I think the structural challenge there is when there's not nearly enough money. And so the pay lines are too high, and so a lot of good ideas, great ideas, go unfunded. And so that's what we spend a lot of time thinking about is making sure that the bucket is big enough, that the funding is is complete enough to be able to fund all of the big ideas and great ideas that, that clinician researchers are having. So some of this is just about having enough, just making sure that Congress is giving NIH enough money to do the work that they that we think ought to happen what we know is that Congress does not give the NIH enough money to do work for children. That if children are 25% of the population, you would think that 25% of NIH funding goes to pediatric research, and we know that that's not correct. And maybe it's not exactly proportional, but we could all agree that there should be much more. So our advocacy agenda there is, in addition to specific diseases or conditions, uh, 
like neck or like prematurity as a category, but also making sure that 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 bucket that is focused on children and pediatric research issues is big enough to make room for all of the priorities that that we have um, uh, neck and everything else uh, besides neck. And so I think that that's the key piece. What is the scope of the national investment? in bio, biomedical research so that we can really accelerate change? And how do we make sure that decision makers at NIH are focused enough on children uh, as, a, as, a, as a group of, of the population? What we know for sure is that the National Institute for Child Health and Human Development is not nearly enough. It is not big enough. It does not have enough of the money. And that much more child health research is funded throughout the other institutes and centers of the NIH. And so um, I think we also have to educate ourselves about not just focusing on NICHD. Yeah, uh, on that point, I think um, it's very interesting for us to be here at the next symposium because um, you, you often hear that NEC doesn't get too much attention because it's affecting preterm babies, which are about X percent of the newborns. And then of these, th these are the number of babies that actually get neck. And so when you go into the statistics, you can really, um, you can, you can really discredit or uh, devalue the impact of an illness. And to me being here at the next symposium, it's really refocusing and centralizing the discussion around individual stories. Um, how do you think it, what is your, your thoughts on juggling these two approaches, both the statistics, which obviously um, funding sources look at closely, but also the stories, the families that are suffering from, these, uh, from this illness and how all this can actually be tied together to push advocacy forward, both in, with funding, research, and other, and other manners. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great question because it mixes sort of the scientific approach and the advocacy approach. You know, um, if we just got the smartest people around the table, um, we could divide up NIH resources in a very statistically appropriate way, right? That's a scientific mind. Uh, I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to step right out of that and, uh, and, um, and talk about uh, people and how this process actually works. But I think you've also, in your question, put your, put your uh, finger on something that's quite important. What we also can't do is have um, resource allocation decisions made by um, uh, the children of a famous person or a powerful person or someone who has the ability to galvanize political resources, right? So you, you would have a distortion in a different direction if, if that's the way you go. Uh, I think, you know, NEC is itself something that is worthy of a much more intensive focus, uh, as a part of all of the constellation of things that can happen for preterm babies and, and elsewhere. But imagine the scientific enterprise associated with what would be necessary to solve it. What else would be the collateral benefit of that research across all of, for GI, for, you know, for all of the aspects of um, uh, conditions that happen in, in preterm? And so that, that, has, that has immeasurable benefit. In addition to, to um, uh, building a world without neck, you could actually build all kinds of other things. Uh, you don't know where you're going to end up when you begin. So I think we have a very strong case to make. Uh, neonatology is doing a great job. And uh, babies who are born earlier and earlier are doing better and better. And so we all have a stake in that. And we all have uh, um, a role to play in telling that story 
so that uh, everybody can take their baby home. I have kind of a related question. So I think a lot of people say, well, I have this research idea. How can I fit it into the funding that is available? And I wonder what our role is as clinicians or clinician scientists in saying, well, maybe we can impact uh, what is being funded um, by opening those lines of communication with people who do the funding. So what about advocacy in that perspective saying, you know, this is something we need and this is why, how do we open up those channels? Yeah, great. Uh, the, I, one of the things that's just true of Congress and when we teach about advocacy, we talk about storytelling because, you know, members of Congress, they're mostly lawyers. There's not a, there's not a lot of doctors mm-hmm. in Congress, not a lot of scientists in Congress. There are two pediatricians, I'm happy to say. So we doubled up on our pediatricians at the last election, which uh, for anybody listening who was thinking about it, um, I'll send you my email address and we talk about it. We need a whole lot more people uh, in Congress who understand child health. It, it, that's your point. It was amazing to sit with Congresswoman Schreier, uh, Dr. Schreier, when she was elected of uh, the first pediatrician in Congress ever of a few years ago. And we went into her office. The whole leadership of the American Academy of Pediatrics like, went down to celebrate this. You know, one of ours made it in to Congress. It was very exciting. Um, it was a joyful moment. But uh, what I realized is that we don't have to explain anything to her. Right. We don't have to explain anything to her. She just gets it from the very beginning. That's very different than talking to her congressperson neighbor across the hall who ran a car dealership before running for Congress uh, from his or her neighborhood, and and where you have to begin there. So um, beginning at the beginning for someone like Congresswoman Schreier is really different. And so when you don't have that scientific background, when you don't have the advantage of that kind of expertise, you have to really begin at the beginning. And that's when... The politics business is really about people, and it really it, those stories are compelling. And so, what could be um, more compelling than a family talking about the experience of their baby uh, in the NICU and humanizing uh, a kind of esoteric discussion of the appropriate levels of NIH funding about whatever? To um, let me tell you um, about my child, and no one cannot be changed by that. You can't. You can't. You'd have, very few people can ignore um, the power of that. So advocacy is about sort of creating those moments, as I mentioned. But the storytelling is a key part of it. For this community, that piece of it is very simple. These stories are overwhelmingly compelling, and it makes you want to do something to prevent neck. The hard part is to figure out, like, here's my story. The hard part is the second part, which is here's what I need from you. And that is a process of discernment. You have to work on that. You have to craft that ask. You have to craft that message. You have to build that question. And so we've got the stories here. Uh, Now the question is, what do we want? What do we need? And so uh, we can come up with that. And that's going to take work, and uh, it's going to be big ideas. So Congress is what, you know, we can talk about, but also – I think we can't assume that decision makers at NIH know about it either. You know, you have a whole lot of people at NIH who are focused on adults. 
And, uh, and so issues around prematurity or things that go on in the NICU, maybe they remember that from medical it's, school or it's residency. Like, it's like when we have a, a, a physician family in the unit. Mm. You, you assume they know everything because mm-hmm. they're quote-unquote physicians, but they're uh, adult internists yeah. and they know a lot, but they don't know the reality of the NICU. And so uh, we should never make that mental uh, leap, I think. That's right. It's the opposite of the airplane story, mm. where when they say, is there someone on the airplane, all the pediatricians are like, oh, I hope, <laughs> I hope someone else. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't so worked on an old person <laughs> with chest pain in a long time. <laughs> That's exactly right. That is so true. I wanted to, uh, we're, we're coming to the end of, of this conversation, and, and I think you brought up storytelling. And to me, there's, a, there's another story that we're not yet addressing, which is that the AAP is doing so many great things. And yet, you are here at the next symposium. Mm-hmm. I think the story about what this tells us uh, regarding what the AP um, thinks and how they see this, this particular venue with its all-inclusive nature is something that, to me, is, is full of hope and is very inspirational. Can you tell us a little bit why it is important for you and for and you as a, as a person, but also as a representative of the AP, to be here today um, with the rest of the attendees? Thank you. It's a, it's uh, the honor is mine. I, I am delighted to have been invited, and um, and certainly would have come just to come, uh, and am happy to also speak uh, as well. I think this the history of successful child health advocacy always begins with uh, the stories, whatever the topic. Almost almost any topic. Um, if you think about the whole history of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. It was because there were children who were killed by these sort of corner-concocted serums and potions and things. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes it's necessary to, to create awareness and to create uh, change uh, by telling the stories of the suffering of children. And unfortunately, I wish, that, I, I, I wish there was a day when I could say that, that is not the case. But this uh, community is telling a story that needs to be told and needs to be heard by many, many more people. Uh, this is a devastating, neck is a devastating uh, condition in, in the NICU. Um, but, but the whole work of neonatology, I think, is, is a part of this as well. I, I don't think anybody knows what the NICU is until they need it. And then it is an overwhelming, stunning, then you don't ever have to be convinced anymore about why it's very important. But if you've never had a child in the NICU, you've never known a child in the NICU, have never been on that floor of the hospital, uh, then wh- why would you prioritize this? And so I think there is, a, this, there is a powerful moment here with a powerful story to tell that will have um, uh, hopefully major impacts to create uh, the tagline, A World Without Neck. But we have so much more to do uh, in, in, with premature infants generally. And so I think uh, I'm happy to be here to represent the Academy of Pediatrics. I'm happy to um, tell some tips and tricks that I have uh, learned over the years about advocacy. But um, being a part of this movement is very important for AP, and it's very exciting for me to be able to participate in it. Certainly we can um, really feel the impact of when the families tell their stories, um, both of babies who survived and certainly of babies who didn't. And we know that a lot of families who come into the NICU um, may not 
be ready to share their stories, may not be comfortable sharing their stories. They may be home with a medically complicated um, child so that they, they just don't have the additional bandwidth to, to do the advocacy themselves. And certainly, especially through the AAP, we know that physicians coming to talk about their work has moved the needle um, by going to talk to their legislators or their local um, officials. Um, so for the clinicians or the clinician scientists, you know, what, what role do we have in the kind of storytelling um, to, to do that on behalf of our patients? I think that's really powerful uh, as, as a way to think about this. Um, the medical expertise that pediatricians, neonatologists, uh, pediatric medical subspecialists or pediatric surgeons, that expertise matters. Uh, that, that, that training experience and, and, and clinical expertise is really important to bring to the policymakers. It, that, and that does work. There is a, uh, that is a respected voice in, in the health, for the health of children. It's, it, pediatrics is, by every um, public opinion poll, uh, people think that pediatricians are uh, experts and giving objective medical advice. They don't always follow the advice, but they believe that it's coming from a good place and that uh, there's some science behind it. Uh, and so that, that, that expertise matters. That, that is really important. And that's why at AP, we spend a lot of time bringing pediatricians in front of policymakers at various levels because, because you can't assume knowledge on, on the policymaker side and hearing and being able to ask an expert is, is powerful. Uh, I think that that, that is similarly powerful when pediatricians are speaking for children. I think that speaking on behalf of their patients that really uh, that that really matters and and can move the needle, as you said. It's a different kind of thing when families are speaking about their children. It is not better, worse, or otherwise, but it is a different kind of story. It's a different way of hearing the experience. So when you're thinking as a neonatologist about what's going on in the NICU, you're thinking about all the medical and clinical and pieces of it. Parents can tell the story about what it's out, what it's like to stand on the outside looking through the glass worrying about their child. And that's just a different layer of, of the story, a different aspect, a different facet of the story that's very important. One is not more important than the other, but what can happen? And the, I think the best example is when the clinicians and families partner and can have the opportunity to tell their story together. And that is really, that's alchemy. That's really exciting. And it doesn't take a hundred percent. I appreciate your point so much. Not every family who's gone through something, whatever it is with their children need to become advocates about that. And, and not all families want to do that. And that's really okay. Um, but for those families who want to do that and who are ready to tell that story and to create that change, um, I think that there's power in people coming together, linking up arms, forming a community. It reduces a sense of isolation, you know, having to advocate by yourself, but it also deepens the agenda. It deepens the voice. And so it's really powerful. So I think, um, you know, win-win is when, when the two voices are coming together, but on both sides, there's huge opportunities to make change. And we almost don't want to connect with the families at the level of their story in the ICU because we, the emotional toll that this can take is really difficult when, you, when you're trying to apply decision-making strategies. And I think this is why a meeting like the one today really allows us to do this outside the confine of 
us being clinicians in the ICU and start thinking without the burden of a patient that's waiting for a decision on our mm -hmm. end. So I think I think this is this is critical, critical. That's a great point. I think you know. It, I would not advise anybody who is still actively going through trauma to try to be exploited in that way. You know, I mean, we have to be very careful around people and their and what's what's happening for them, uh, and both both on the clinician side and that that physician patient relationship, family relationship is a healing relationship on many levels, mm -hmm. not just the actual medicine that you're practicing right in the moment. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point. When when a family, when the baby is in the NICU is not the time to think, hey, you want to sign this petition? You, know, right. you want to be a part? You want to go to this meeting with me? Like, I, I would advise against that <laughs> for sure. Um, Mark, this, this was a phenomenal conversation. We appreciate you uh, taking the time to sit down with us today. Um, definitely. I have one more question. I'm so sorry. Because usually, let me tell you something, Mark. We record these things virtually. And so I get a text from Daphne that tells me I have one more. I'm done. And now we're in person. And so I, I don't really get that. So I didn't get the cue. I'm so sorry, Daphne. Go ahead. Well, we've kind of talked about the um, graded stepwise way that people can become in, uh, involved in advocacy. So what if people really want to jump in? They want to go and change policy and they, they want to go to Washington as we, as it were. Um, how do they get involved? Great question. So if you are a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics, that's super easy. Um, if you're a neonatologist, join the section on neonatal and perinatal medicine and they have a great advocacy committee that is, uh, active and robust and have a huge agenda and it's very fun to watch and fun to participate. So, so, um, you know, please be a part of that, uh, strengthen that with your experience and with your ideas and bring your advocacy issues to the table. Uh, with it, that is an enriching experience on both sides when people participate together in advocacy. So, uh, for the clinicians, I would absolutely join. And if, and if you're not a neonatologist, if you, whatever your subspecialty is that, that brings you to this work, join that section. All of the sections of AAP are, are engaged in advocacy we spend a lot of time and energy supporting that work because it's just incredibly important for families i think uh, something like the next society is so crucial as a starting point there's almost no one um, unless you were a lobbyist before you had a child uh, who can just enter that at at you know at the varsity level it's it's not a fair uh, a fair ask And so if you are thinking about advocacy as a, as a family member or a caregiver, um, uh, I would definitely find others, find partners. Um, the evidence is very clear that if you have a gym buddy, you go to the gym a whole lot more. Uh, and so um, that's why I don't have a gym buddy. <laughs> But <laughs> I mean, it's too personal. Sorry. Uh, but I think given a, getting a buddy yeah. uh, around advocacy as a family, what you get is a lot of advocacy support, and you also get a lot of other support, which is really important. So uh, we also at AAP, for families who have stepped forward and want to do this kind of work um, on many topics, we have the Family Partnership Network, so families can step forward and join each other and, and work on advocacy that we try to facilitate at, at AAP. And And my last thought would be, um, remember where we began about this, that, that advocacy is a series of moments. Mm -hmm. Very few people get a law passed, right? Mm -hmm. Very few people testify in front of Congress, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But everybody can make change. Everybody can help make one incremental improvement that others can join and leverage and stack upon each other to build something that we can be really proud of and to build a future that we all want for children 
uh, and for families. Okay, now we can let Mark go about his day. Mark, thank you very much for making the time. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.the-incubator.org. You can also message the show on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.